I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. We continue our journey through the forest of unique conversations from this year's LA Design Festival. This week, we have a very cool presentation from LAD Design founder, graphic designer, creative director, and Grammy Award winner, Lawrence Azarad. Azarad Studio, LAD Design, is focused on the crossroads of branding, culture, music, and education. It makes perfect sense, too, as Azard's prior experience was as an art director with Warner Brothers Records, working on the creative packaging for artists ranging from the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Miles Davis. Azarad is the author of a book called Supersonic, The Design and Lifestyle of Concord. It's a Prestel release due out in September 2018. He is also producer and creative director of the Voyager Golden Record 40th Anniversary Edition. He discusses all of it here in a conversation about design from a very unique point of view. Lawrence is introduced by Erica Abrams, member of the advisory board of the AIGA Los Angeles chapter, as is Lawrence, by the way. A happy coincidence here is that we shared our space at the LA Design Festival with the AIGA as they were presenting some amazing subway art graphics that you can still see in the background of our videos uh, that we shot at the LA Design Festival. So go to our YouTube channel and check them out for yourself. It's kind of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Convo by Design. If you like what you hear, and I hope that you do, please give us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the podcast, and it is greatly appreciated. Thanks. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond. Always first with what's next in the kitchen and bath. Snyder Diamond is a family-owned and operated company that serves the Southern California design and architecture community, as well as discriminating homeowners through remarkable customer service, and a curated offering of kitchen and bath appliances, fixtures, and finishes. The products at Snyder Diamond include the industry's best, like the full line of Mila appliances. Mila, a family-owned and operated company offering industry-leading products since 1899. This includes a full line of refrigerators, ovens, steamers, cooktops, wine units, coffee machines, dishwashers, ventilation hoods, washers, and dryers. All of these products are made using the highest standards in manufacturing and industry-leading technology to provide a superior class of appliance. Form, function, and future. That's Mila. Pair that with the standard bearer when it comes to customer service, and Snyder Diamond delivers dreamy kitchens that exceed expectations. If that's not enough, right now and for a very limited time, Mila is offering some amazing and very generous rebates and offers. For details on these and to see the full line of Mila products, visit any of the three Southern California Snyder Diamond locations or visit online at SnyderDiamond.com. Hi all, um, my name is Erica Abrams. I'm an advisory board member for AIGA LA. I'm also on a committee for LA Design Festival. I'm an LA native. I love LA, I love design. Um, before I get started, I just wanted to not say the official things, but I wanted to just have a, like a personal note. I truly hate public speaking. Hate it to my core. But when I was asked to introduce Lawrence, I said yes, just because every time I've been around him, not that I know him well, he's always been so lovely and so sweet and so kind and so humble. So I had to get over myself. And um, so here we are. Um, this year's uh, LA Design Festival theme is designed for everyone and this philosophy falls very much in line with AIGA's goals and mission as a community of creative, as a community of creatives 
to connect, inspire, and engage people who love design throughout Los Angeles and the country. AIGA is the largest professional organization for design in the nation. We have over 70 chapters and 25,000 members worldwide. Side note, we are also sponsoring a poster show somewhere um, at the Sound Lab, it, or the Audio Lab, Underground Images, a school of visual arts subway posters, so check it out. So now I'd like to introduce Lawrence, who's a Grammy award-winning graphic designer for the Voyager Golden Record, a creative director, my fellow AIGA LA advisory board member, founder of LAD Designs, and author of Supersonic, the Design and Lifestyle of the Concord, which will be published later this year in September. Thank you, Erica, and thank you, LA Design Festival, and thank you, LAGA, uh, AIGA LA, for having me. And most importantly, thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your Saturday to come down here and talk about design. Like Erica mentioned, I'm also an LA native, and my studio, LAD Design, is in downtown LA. And it's, it's great that you all came out here to support design, because design really reminds us of the best that we can be and the design and music connection enriches our daily life, connecting us to the human experience. And whether it's Wagner or EDM or Turkish whirling dervishes, music is what lifts us up out of our daily drudgery of life. It's what makes our being a human special and that experience meaningful. And whether it's NWA or second line dancing in New Orleans, your college marching band or line dancing, Republican or Democrat, black or white, gay or straight, music connects us to our tribe. It, what's, it's what makes being a human special. It's evidence of what it means to be human. And at our studio, we design a lot of album covers, and we're really enthusiastic about that because it provides a tangible experience, a tangible touch point to that part of humanity that makes living special. That physical thing that you can touch, that you can see, that you know is real in your hands, and that thing that also gives you um, this creative experience in your life at such uh, precious life moments. But no matter how big the scope and scale of the album projects that we have worked on, the most important thing is this, connecting to the experience of the fans. It's not about what we design or what we think is important. It's that individual creative experience that people have when they listen to the music and when they go home and they, they connect to that artwork, when they connect to that album cover of their poster, they remember a special time in their life or a special moment or a special memory. Could be a hard memory, could be a happy memory, but what it is is connecting to those creative experiences in our life through design. And possibly there's no better story of connecting to the human experience through this record project that we've worked on, which is the 40th anniversary of the Voyager Golden Record, uh, which you see here attached to one of the Voyager spacecraft. So in 1977, NASA launched two spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, on a grand tour of our solar system and beyond deep into the mysteries of interstellar space. You see, scientists figured out that if they sent these two spacecraft on a certain trajectory, at a certain speed, at a certain time, that they would all pass perfectly by all the planets in our solar system. We used this heliocentric map of their trajectories on the record slip map, which we included in the Voyager Golden Record package. 
It provided for us these incredible images of our planetary neighbors. And, you know, obviously I apologize for the color being washed out, but, you know, they, they were, it's much more vivid when we don't have it backlit. But it was the first time us humans got a close-up look at our planetary neighbors. And it was completely game-changing about our understanding in our world, who we are, and where we are. Uh, just massive discoveries about the chemical composition of these planets, uh, volcanoes on moons of Jupiter's, just groundbreaking discoveries. And attached to the spacecraft is this stunning Voyager, is this stunning golden record. It's a message from Earth, from us, a message from Earth to extraterrestrials who may encounter the spacecraft perhaps billions of years from now. Now, notice I didn't say, uh, it, it, what I said was that the extraterrestrials may encounter the spacecraft. I didn't say if extraterrestrials exist, because we can know with pretty fair certainty that they do exist, thanks to uh, this fellow that I'm standing next to here, Frank Drake, the founder of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and one of the founding members of the original Voyager Record Committee. And he was also the creator of the um, Drake Equation, which basically explains how we know that almost for sure certainty that they do exist, which is basically N equals the number of civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy where electromagnetic emissions are detectable, R, is the rate of formation of stars suitable for the development of intelligent life. FP is the fraction of those stars with planetary systems, all very uh, simple so far. NE, the number of planets per solar system with an environment suitable for life, easy. FL, the fraction of suitable planets on which life actually appears. FI, the fraction of life-bearing planets on which intelligent life emerges. FC, the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space. And lastly, L, the length of time such civilizations release detectable signals into space. Basically, our universe is so vast, and there are so many suns with Earth-like planets around us that this calculates the very likely probability that there are other Earths with other signs of life on it. They just, the universe is so vast, we just haven't connected with them yet. This is our message to them, our first message to them. And what's on the record? Earth's greatest music, from Bach and Beethoven to Blind Willie Johnson, from Chuck Berry to Solomon Island Panpipes, dozens of natural sounds, uh, birds, humpback whales, a mother's kiss, baby crying, rain, all woven into a lovely audio poem called Sounds of Earth. 55 greetings spoken in human languages from all over the world, all spoken in their own cultural idioms. And etched on the cover of the record in space, on the, on the gold-plated cover, is this diagram explaining where it came from and how to play it. Uh, this here part explains this is the hub of our solar system and these electric magnetic rays they should be able to follow. And then if they spin the record at this rotation, the number of dots on the record, they'll get this electro frequency in which they'll be able to decode the images that are encoded in the grooves on the record. All very simple so far, right? 
And yes, that's right. They digitized and encoded images in the grooves of the record. This was revolutionary at the time. There was only two companies that ha even had the technology. Now we just, well, our phones, you know, our phones, you just take an iPhone picture and automatically the, the image is digitized. But if you, the generation before that, scanning, photocopying, the idea of taking an image and turning it into data, there was only two companies that did that and they found those companies and they encoded those data into the grooves of the record. And what are these images? The images tell the story of humanity. They tell the story of our world. Uh, when we laid out the images in the consecutive order in their book, we actually had to get our dog, our puppy, into the lecture too. Um, we kind of had an epiphanal moment uh, that they, they laid them out in a very specific sequence that, you know, it starts with our earliest mathematical numbers to our earliest forms of biology, to our reproductive systems, to a baby being born, to a young child, to our family structures, to our civic structures, architectural, cultural groups, our natural world, geological world, and so on and so on and so on. So it's this beautiful visual essay that explains all the images and life on Earth. Uh, John Lomberg was one of the creative directors of the project. He wanted to include this image on um, that far end uh, to explain our human reproductive systems, but lest anyone accuse NASA of puddling smut interstellarly, uh, they opted to go for that image instead, you know, because, like, let's be proprietary. Let, let's have some propriety with the aliens, please. You know, I mean, you don't want to be offensive. Uh, and we went through the painstaking process of tracking down every single photographer on the original Golden Record so we could clear the rights and have their permission and, and pay who we could uh, for the usage of the record, yielding some incredible stories. One, the partner that, that was tasked with this part of the project in tracking down the family for this photographer searching for the royalties, he tracked down the family and the guy he finally tracked down, uh, he said, yes, my dad did take that picture and that's actually me as the baby in the picture, which, uh, so there was just like many, many kind of interesting um, stories like that. This one's really good, uh, licking, eating, and drinking, showing our, uh, just how humans consume food and how we eat. But freakishly enough, if you want to figure out how to de decode the data using only the diagram etched on the golden record cover, it is possible, and amazingly enough, it actually works, and somebody did it on the internet, and here is the proof. These are the images decoded strictly from the data, only using the instructions etched on the diagram on the cover of the record. If you want to know how he did it, you'll have to Google it, because it, uh, you'll need the PhD in that, so, but it, it, it was kind of fascinating to see that it really does work. Um, and here we are at JPL with the uh, librarian pulling out the master lacquers of the original Golden Record, which led to us designing this package. We really wanted to design a package that was untethered to any style, that was kind of above a style, kind of that, something that represented the sacred gravity of explaining and expressing what it meant to be a human here on Earth. All makers of all music of all time. The type of album package that if it was chucked out into space and picked up by another civilization 400,000 years from now, that it would still have the gravity and the gravitas and the meaning 
appropriate of such a message from Earth, which led to, as Erica explained, this moment, us. It was a crazy moment. It was weird because um, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson actually presented our award to us. And if, if anybody caught Dr. deGrasse Tyson on John Oliver's show last weekend, you'll know what I mean by this. But word of advice, if you're ever accepting an award on a stage from Neil deGrasse Tyson, do not play loose with your astrophysics. Okay, because this is what uh, happens. lastly, uh, this is dedicated to Chuck Berry, who we lost this year, but his music lives on forever, floating in interstellar space 13.5 billion miles away. And the concept of the Voyager Golden Record that was 13.5, right, Neil? Plus or minus. And the concept that design matters, that science matters, and most of all, music matters as to how we connect to who we are. Thank yep. you very much. <laughs> so, yeah, just in case anybody's wondering, as of 12.30 today, uh, the Voyager 1 is 11.7 billion miles away. So I was off uh, about two, like as Neil said, plus or minus. Uh, it's traveling at 11 miles a second, and it will take... 70,000 years to get to Alpha Centauri, our closest, nearest uh, solar system. Uh, so, so none of the creators of the original record actually anticipated that extraterrestrials would understand Urdu, Sumerian, Hebrew, or Nepali. You see, those messages on the record were meant to stand as an expression of the contents of the record for the inhabitants of this planet. Carl Sagan, who led the committee that put the record together, he said the launching of this bottle into the cosmic ocean says something very hopeful about life on this planet. The creative minds who put the record together, they agreed from the outset that there should not be any images of war or disease or violence or even poverty on the record. It's ostensibly an idealistic self-portrait. And they did that because they wanted an image that we here on Earth could aspire to. And that, I believe, in this day and age is something we need more than ever. A message of our greatness, a message of what we can be when we are at our best, a message to aspire to. And as we consider how to express ourselves to others out there, we begin to consider who we are in a much deeper way. So here we are back at JPL. This is the vehicle assembly room where they, where our gov every vehicle that our government has sent out into the space has, has been made. You can see the mission patches up there on the wall. Uh, and every vehicle crafted in this room from Voyager to the Mars rover has been built with great inspiration and great creativity. And as you walk into JPL, there's this sign that says this, Dare Mighty Things. This image, it's hard to see on the washed out projector, but the vividness is much more, um, it's much more vivid than the ones that Voyager sent back. This actually was taken almost a year ago, just shy, a month shy of a year ago today. Um, you know, we do this to unlock the mysteries of the universe so we can learn about who we are. And in the process, we enrich our lives and in the lives of others. 
And I don't, how many of you have the Voyager record box? Okay, a few of you. We use this image uh, on our end papers of the book. This is an image that uh, Voyager 2 took when it uh, was at the very edge of the solar system, leaving our solar system. I might mind you that this is the only human-made object ever to leave our solar system. And when it got to the edge of the solar system, Carl Sagan asked the committee to, the, the mission committee to turn the cameras around and take one last parting shot of Earth in our neighborhood. And they didn't want to do it. Uh, well, because it was, uh, they didn't, we were afraid of pointing the cameras at the sun. It wasn't part of the mission. And most of all, like the Voyager Golden Record, it's not science. But what it is, is it is a poetic look at who we are where we are and why we are. And these are the things that inspire humanity about our place in the world. And from this series of images came probably one of the most poetic speeches by uh, Carl Sagan explaining where we are and why it's important. And if you haven't heard this speech, uh, trigger warning, you may want to bring out your tissues. It's a very um, profound statement on, on us in our universe. Okay. Publisher's note here, Lawrence plays a clip of Carl Sagan talking about Pale Blue Dot. It's, it's wonderful and it's fantastic, but we don't have the uh, release to play it for you. So if you want to know about Carl Sagan or about the Pale Blue Dot, uh, go to Amazon. You can buy uh, Pale Blue Dot, a vision of the human future in space. And it's wonderful. It really is. Anyway, uh, can't play it here, but... Um, you can look it up on YouTube. I'm sure it's there. That's what uh, that's what he's talking about. All right, back to Lawrence. Just probably one of the most beautiful speeches about um, our place in the universe, and in the spirit of connecting to messages of our ideal self, we see that the development of transportation is intrinsically linked to the, uh, the development of, of humankind through innovation and design. You know, starting all the way back uh, with the Silk Road uh, to the Spanish Galleons, to the Intercontinental Railroad, the Model T, the Wright Brothers, Pan Am's Clipper Planes, the advent of the Jet Age, all the way to Neil Armstrong's bootprint on the moon. All of these stages of humanity drive us forward towards goals of aspiration as expressed in creativity and design. And that's what our book, Supersonic, is really all about. This idea that idealism through design, we can make it better. So our book, as Erica mentioned, is coming out in uh, September on Prestel. It's a design and lifestyle history of Concord, the, only, the world's only luxury supersonic airliner. And what's exciting about the era of Concord is it came out of this part of the jet age, this dawn of the jet age, where there was this palpable enthusiasm of bringing tomorrow here today, that through this idealism, we can make the world better, we can make the human experience better, we can make our lives better through creativity, through innovation, through technology, through design. And you see that as expressed in ideas through uh, Graphic design, you see it as expressed in automobiles. You certainly see it in architecture. Here's Errol Saarinen's TWA terminal at JFK Kennedy or uh, Errol Saarinen at uh, Dallas Airport in Virginia. 
And here, even at our own Jet Age airports uh, for LAX, designed by Welton Beckett and Associates, um, at the time, one of the most very modern airport uh, that was um, divine, designed. But you see this blueprint here for LAX, here's Sepulveda Boulevard. Um, and over here at all the gates, you see these delta-shaped visions of Concorde. The idea was that there was going to be lots of Concords, and this obviously was the most rational next step. We you know we had passenger uh, propeller airplanes, and we went to jet airlines. You know, of course, we would go to Concorde. It was it was seemingly the most logical way to go. Uh, this is a chapter in our book where we actually do have a real picture of Concorde visiting uh, the Jet Age terminal at LAX, but that was just one time, and that was a uh, public city flight. But you see the enthusiasm expressed in toys for children, board games showing up in movies and television, and you don't see that uh, enthusiasm for design uh, as expressed in the same way today. Uh, so every airline was going to fly Concorde, you know, United Airlines, American Airlines, Qantas Airlines. You could get to from New York to L.A. in about two and a half hours. Uh, what happened, well, America was building its own supersonic transport. Of course, it was going to be faster and it was going to be bigger because America... Uh, that, you know, of course. And then the Soviets actually did make one, and they got to service first, the Tupolev 144. It looked suspiciously like the Concorde, but, you know, we won't get into that. But there was this huge geopolitical race that Kennedy wanted to beat de Gaulle. Of course, we were all racing against the Soviets. It was who could gain supremacy in this race to get to the future. Uh, I say that Concorde was the only luxury supersonic airliner because the Tupolev was definitely not a luxury experience. Uh, I've seen pictures of it on the inside. Um, and here you can see the relative scale. Here's the, the Boeing planned one and then the Tupolev in the middle and then the Concorde. The Pan Am on the ad on the right uh, explaining that the future is here now. You have announcing Concorde service in 1971, the advent on the 747, more on that later, and then the, the Boeing SST-2. So th this, was, this was happening. This was, this was going to be the actual reality. And you hear that phrase, form follows function. It really was the physics of the airplane that dictated this beautiful swan-like shape. So it ended up that it turned out to be a very beautiful shape, but it was all about the geometry of the physics that, that um, made it have to look like that. We won't get into that right now. But what, could, what made the design of the aircraft itself so special? It flew twice the speed of sound. That's 1,350 miles an hour. Uh, it flew literally faster than a speeding bullet. It flew faster than the rotation of the Earth itself. So that means if you left going westward, you could actually get to your destination in local time before the time you left. It was the only way you could actually go back in time or gain minutes. If you were flying west and you saw the sun setting in front of you, you could actually see the sun rising. It could beat the sun. Uh, if you saw, it flew at 60,000 feet, so that was twice at the altitude of the other airplanes. If you saw an airplane 30,000 feet below you flying in the same direction, that airplane would be appearing to be flying backwards because you were flying twice the speed of that. And at 60,000 feet, I took this picture, um, but you can't really see it. The sky is black, and you can see the curvature of the Earth. 
uh, it's as close as you could get to being in outer space because you're at the troposphere and you could actually see the curvature of the Earth. So because all the airlines dropped their orders because America basically wouldn't allow Concorde to fly over the continental US, the two airlines that had it were stuck with these kind of 16 extra special Maseratis. So they turned to an ecosystem of design to make the experience valuable and uh, special. Here we have this insane travel brochure, uh, like a 24-page foldout showing the Raymond Lowy interior, Raymond Lowy being uh, the father of modern industrial design. He also designed this cutlery on the right, which Andy Warhol used to love to steal because it was collectible. And basically with Warhol, it became kind of like the mode of transport for the world's superstars and fabulous. So here you have French President Jacques Chirac, heads of state, of course, Mick and Bianca, royalty, the queen, even the vicar of Rome, the pontiff, the pope. Uh, it was just the mode of choice. And of course, supermodels. Supermodel Cindy Crawford wrote the afterword for our book because all the models would take it back and forth from London to all the fashion shows like it was the Southwest Burbank to Vegas shuttle. It was just kind of like, you know, they were on it. You were up there with Naomi and Claudia and, and Cindy. Uh, actually, in, in the afterword for our book, she talks about being so tired that she got in her seat and fell asleep. And then when she woke up at the end of the flight, she realized the whole time she had been sitting next to Mick Jagger. So our book encompasses the whole ecosystem of design and, and everything a passenger came into contact with, from the luggage tags to the co uh, coasters to the ticket jackets, everything had the forefront of design, the forethought of design. Uh, in this early original design program from British Airways, they really wanted to reinforce the nomenclature of the British Empire, that this was still this kind of luxurious experience. Uh, they had the fashion designer to the queen, Edmund Ames, design the uniforms, and, but it still had this uh, futuristic, kind of the future is here uh, ecosystem around it as well. This is the check-in at Heathrow. But they wanted this kind of like clubby, comfortable British vibe because people were afraid of flying supersonically. You know, they wanted to say, you know, what would happen to my body if I was flying twice the speed of sound? And then in the 1980s, they turned to uh, international branding consultancy Landor. It was kind of a big scandal because that's an American firm and that they went, you know, not with a British firm. By the way, this photo is not photoshopped. It really is flying over Manhattan. And they did this very elegant design scheme where they took the British Speedbird and turned it into what was called the British Speed Wing, uh, just kind of like elongating and streamlining the elegance of the identity program for the entire fleet. And this being cascading down to all the gifts and all the elements that all the passengers got to take home and touch and creating this kind of like restrained elegance and then always kind of like with this modern luxurious interior. This was very much kind of like the Porsche 944 that Tom Cruise drove into the lake in Risky Business. Uh, and then Newell and Solon Partners, uh, Solon and Newell and Partners in 1993 redesigned the entire identity again, going even more restrained and more elegant and more simple. And then the, the speed mark, the speed wing becomes what's known as the speed mark. And having that restrained, simple elegance cascade down to all the elements, such as the luggage tags and uh, ticket jackets and all the gifts. You see the speed mark actually 
brought into the uh, the logo mark into the actual chair itself. So Sir Terence Conran uh, consulted on the design for the this last interior. He wrote the forward for our book, uh, and you have a shot of the Terence Conran interior, which was very much like this again restrained elegance, kind of like this luxury Jaguar or. Maserati situation. I'm always taken a little aback when people say like, well, I flew on it and it was very cramped inside. And it's just, you know, it was like a fighter jet with a hundred people uh, on it. What are you expecting? You know, there's not going to be any like showers or bars and there, you know, it, it was, it was very small, of course, but you're also flying at twice the speed of sound and drinking champagne the whole time. Terence Conran also designed the lounges at Kennedy. Uh, he filled the room with all the great design icons of the 20th century, Bauhaus lamps, Eames chairs, just looking and sitting and touching all these design icons before you go on one of the greatest design icons of the 20th century. Uh, so all, all about reinforcing the experience through elegance of design. And on the French version, of course, they turned to the great Andre Putnam. She said, we should seek out ambitious, even unrealistic projects because things only happen when we dream. On the right is her design for the hotel suite at the Royalton Hotel. On the left, her version of the Air France Concorde. They look like the same thing. It's just like, again, this uh, restrained French elegance, luxury, beauty, all in soft muted grays. And be it from the cognac flask to the bottle opener that's shaped like the airplane itself or the menu by Christian Lacroix, everything is designed with design at the forefront of attention. And then this happened. Uh, Air France Flight 4590, July 25th, 2000. What had happened was as the plane was taking off, there was a, a piece of metal. It was determined that Continental Airlines airplane left this piece of debris on the runway. And Concorde, as it was taking off, uh, the tire ran over the piece of metal. The piece of metal flew up into the bottom of the plane, puncturing the fuel tank. The fuel tank caught on fire. And it, there was nothing the pilot could do. Everybody died. 100 people died, and five people died on the ground. And it punctured the idea of safety and superiority of Concorde. It was the first and only accident. These airplanes, because they were so few and because they were so special, they probably were the most well cared for aircraft in the world other than like Air Force One or something like that. But it was kind of a public relations uh, dark period on the history of Concorde. But many people have the mistaken idea that this is what killed Concorde, and it's not. What killed Concorde happened many, many years before that. This is what killed Concorde. The Boeing 747 came out the same year as Concorde did. And in the industry metrics, dollar per seat per mile, the industry decided to go for volume instead of speed. So let's get four times the people there in half the time rather than getting a quarter of the people there twice as fast. And now today we're faced with, you know, airplanes that, that look like this. And it's just this kind of world where it's gotten bigger instead of speed. And, and on the A380, you know, you do have 
rooms that look like a stateroom on the Titanic and showers and bars and things like that. And that's about as futuristic as like the Titanic. But, um, you know, this is where we are today. But they took uh, a little bit over a year fixing the Concords. They lined all the fuel tanks in Kevlar, the material that they use in bulletproof vests. And they spent millions of dollars on it, about 12 months on it. And the very first flight to bring Concorde back in service, they had a publicity flight. And the plane took off from Heathrow. It was a flight to nowhere. It just kind of was just a publicity flight, just out and around and back with just newspapers and things like that. And when the plane landed at Heathrow, people were running up to the Concorde with their cell phones out because at that moment, while Concorde was in the air, Two airplanes had flown into the World Trade Center. Of course, I'm talking about September 11th, 2001. And that ostensibly was the beginning of the real end end for Concord because the core constituents for Concord had already migrated to a private jet. And now we're left with a travel experience that looks very much like this. Um, and now we're also living in a world where the short range, also for economy of scale, the Boeing 737 is the most popular type of aircraft for airlines to operate, leading to an experience that is all too familiar like this. Uh, it's a little bit, we, we regress. We kind of saw a glimpse of the future and we went backwards. To me, I liken it to this idea that uh, maybe some doctors had these MRI machines, but they were only, uh, they only were allowed to, they only could get 100 people to actually use them. So instead they said, you know what, I'm just going to stick with this wooden tube instead to kind of listen to what's inside of people. It, it's, it's very sad when we, we take a step backwards in progress and innovation. Um, so in the end, two years after the return of Concord, they decided just, it just wasn't feasible economically and they decided to call the end of it. And it was an intensely emotional experience. It was a huge moment of national pride for England and France. It was very much like you know, America's Apollo program. 10,000 people showed up at Heathrow to watch the last British Airways Concords land. Here's cabin service director, Claire Sullivan. I mean, look at her. British people don't cry, okay? This was very emotional. Uh, so here we have uh, Sir Terence Conran on, uh, on the far end over there. And he, he writes for us that it inspired millions of people around the world. It became the embodiment of intelligent design. Do not think I exaggerate when I say that it is the single most important piece of design in my long lifetime. Will we see anything quite so elegant, beautiful, and optimistic again? I'm sad to say perhaps not, but perhaps that is the challenge of our great designers, engineers, innovators, and even artists. Can you work together to create something so beautiful, so powerful, and iconic as Concord that pushes the boundaries of our imagination? Can you make us dream like that again? Can you show us the future? All right, thank you everyone. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendôme Furniture. Design culture, it's the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendôme pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamor that is both unique and extraordinary.
And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest? Vendome products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted, modern, durable, molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique and they beg to be enjoyed. They search the planet for the right designers that embody the Vendome spirit and work together to create remarkable pieces into an exclusively Vendome mode of expression. And if you haven't seen Vendome before, you can check them out in uh, some of the Convo by Design videos you'll find on our YouTube channel. But you can find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in LA, or online at Vendome.com.